The Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is One on One with Mitch LaFond, the podcast where the rockers talk, part of the Talking Metal Digital Podcasting Network. Now, here's your host, Mitch LaFond. Welcome to One on One with Mitch LaFond. And joining me on this episode, it is original, a Tigers of Pantang singer and former Neat Records owner Jess Cox. We talk about his time with the band and, of course, the importance of Neat Records and a lot more. Before checking out Jess, please check me out on Twitter at Mitch LaFon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N, one-on-one, Mitch LaFon on Facebook, paypal.me forward slash Mitch LaFon, should you care to support the podcast. And with that, here is the one, the only, Jess Cox. We are speaking with Jess Cox, who uh, happens to be in charge of Metal Nation Records, also worked with Neat, or owned Neat Records, and of course was the first singer in Tigers of Pantang. Uh, Good day, Jess. Pleasure to speak with you. Yep. Hello to you, too. (laughs) So, let's uh, let's start with the present. Uh, Tell me a little bit about Metal Nation uh, Records and what is sort of that mission statement for for the label. Well, um, after I uh, supposedly retired from from bands uh, back in, well, I was 87, I guess, 88, um, I actually did a degree in media uh, at the University of Newcastle, which is my hometown. And when I came out in uh, 91, uh, I got involved with Neat Records, uh, just helping the uh, owner to um, <clears throat> get things on track there because uh, the label had suffered somewhat over the 90s with the uh, with the uh, end of the new British heavy metal and uh, and, and the, uh, the onslaught of the American thrash labels and bands because um, essentially it was a, a new British heavy metal label so I reactivated that forum, uh, and then as time went on, we ended up being partners, uh, and I, I actually owned the label um, through the 90s, and um, once I actually sold that to uh, to Sanctuary PLC, which is Iron Maiden's company, in 2001, and um, I had a, a small label, which I'd been running at the same time, to ironically uh carry the Tigers of Pantang albums from MCA. Um, but once I was solo, as it were, with that label, I uh, I just changed the name, quite frankly. I, I just thought Edgy Records was a bit, uh, wasn't great. Uh, so I came up with the idea of Metal Nation Records. So in 2001, Edgy Records basically changed to Metal Nation Records. And... Um, and that's why where I am now. Yeah. So, so talk to me a little bit about uh, you know edgy and and of course uh, metal nation and the tigers of Pantang. Um, you were with the band on the first album, Wildcat. Um, how did you maintain your relationship to get to a point where you would be re-releasing their you know their first four albums later on? Well, um, I mean, we were four young guys basically in a small seaside town in the northeast of England called Whitley Bay. And we all lived within a few streets of each other. And we kind of formed the band together in 1979. Um, 
so you know we we right from the start i mean we didn't have a, didn't even have any songs when we formed the band you know we just uh we, we used to do covers we used to do uh, i remember we used to do the beatles <laughs> i saw us standing there and amongst other things a bit more metal even motorhead and whatever but um once um once we got into the music industry when we got signed in well, Neat Records was the first label to sign us, actually, strangely enough. Uh, we did one single with them in 1979, and they got picked up by MCA Records um, for, a, I think they were just going to do a distribution on it, but things lifted up and they wanted us full-time, so we signed MCA America. Um, and when the band did finally end, and uh, I, I came into the music industry in 91 after my degree uh, and I formed Edgy Records as a sideline from Neat Records to carry the the Tigers albums. Obviously that was nothing to do with the band that was a business situation with MCA Records uh, where I, I literally licensed the albums from them because um, they yeah, obviously MCA had the rights and they could do what they wanted uh, and I, I licensed it uh, so I put together, but I put together a nice package of four albums, but I put all the bonus tracks on from A and B sides, and I think it was like 65 archive photographs and <clears throat> lyrics, sleeve notes by the band. I mean, I got the guys to write sleeve notes. Um, they'd all dispersed to the four winds by then, as it were. Uh, I mean, uh, Rob Weir was a... I think he was a ticket inspector on the local trains uh, at that point. Um, and uh, Rocky, the bass player, was a solicitor in London and still is. And the drummer was uh, bass... Well, I think he'd been playing with Kid Creel and the Coconuts, uh, from what I remember. But I know he was doing, like, trips in Miami on these kind of uh, cruise ships and things uh, as a backing drummer. Um, but I I think that's where he was at, and obviously John Sykes was, well, stratospheric somewhere with uh, Whitesnake or Lizzie or somebody. So um, no, nobody, we were kind of all over the place, so I mean, there was nobody to even discuss me doing what I was going to do anyway, even if I want, needed to, which, but as I say, I didn't, because it was a, a straight business deal between my label and MCA Records. Yeah, good old MCA. Uh, let, let's go back to the first album, Wildcat. Um, what can you sort of tell me about that, that putting it together and working with Chris Tangredis? Well, as I say, when we first got together in 78, uh, we had no songs. So we started writing um, just because we thought we should, basically. Um, and uh, we came up with uh, Don't Touch Me There was the first thing we came up with, which which happened to be the first single on the records. Um, I think um, we were just playing around. We were just kids. I mean, just in a band. We did. It was different. It was a different world then. People got to remember. It was not like now. It's very competitive, and people know what they want and how to be a rock star and the work at A to Z and go through all these magical things that are around now, like the internet and such. Like, I mean, you were locked in a little town, and uh, you know. That was it. I mean, there was <laughs> there was no interview, internet. The, the, you just didn't hear anything about nothing. So I mean, we we were just playing in our own town quite merrily, as a local band, just uh, being kids. And for whatever reason, this new British heavy metal came along, 
and uh, we got tied up into all that. So it was all just a bit of luck. Um, I mean, we, you know, from forming to being signed by MCA was was like eighteen months, you know. So, but we we'd written songs in in that eighteen months uh, on our on our local rehearsals at the local church hall, pretty much like any other young band does. Um, and uh, we we had a we had all these songs ready. So when we were signed, um, we uh, we we demoed them actually. Um, it, neat records. Uh, whilst we did the first single there, we we went in and did a live a live recording and, and a couple of demos, uh, all which appeared on a on a later album called First Kill, uh, which I released with Neat Records in 1996. But uh, anyway, we, we we demoed all these album uh, tracks, and then when we were signed uh, for MCA, we we chose. Uh, ten of them to go on um, to go on the Wildcat album because uh, we signed. I think it was April 1980. We got properly signed, and then we went straight on tour. And then it's after the tours, we did back-to-back tours with Saxon, Iron Maiden, Def Leppard. I seem to remember we did a big Redden festival, and then we went into the studio and recorded the first album of Chris. Uh, obviously, Chris was assigned to us basically because of his work with other bands like Lizzie and, and, and Priest and whatever he'd done. And um, we recorded at the Morgan Studios in London. And, uh, you know, Chris was uh, our first, well, I guess our first producer really at New Records, which has had a house engineer who, uh, who kind of twiddled the knobs, as it were. Uh, Chris was like a proper producer. And, uh, he was a great guy. He's a very nice, pleasant fella. Uh, knew how to get the best out of everybody, as all these top producers do. Uh, hard work, I seem to remember. A lot of sitting around listening to overdubs. Um, but, um, yeah, that was that. And uh, we, we came out with the album, uh, which came out in, in the... We did Redden Festival in the August, so it must have come out that same month, I guess. And it ended, you know, straight in the top twenty in the UK, which was unbelievable. And we were, we went off on our first headline tour of uh, the UK after that. Which which is where I find the story gets a little puzzling because here you are with sort of a massive hit. It's a top twenty album. Songs like "Don't Touch Me There," "Susie Smiled," you know, "Wildcats." Here we are in two thousand sixteen. They still hold up. Um, why didn't the band ex- achieve? a greater success in, in a style of a Def Leppard or an Iron Maiden. Why was the band sort of, uh, I don't want to say stuck in the UK, but why didn't you get North America acceptance? Yeah, well, this is, this, this is the great unanswered question. And of course, as, as musicians, you don't get to know why. Um, MCA obviously just didn't feel they could... Um, I don't know. They didn't. They didn't push us like EMI were pushing Iron Maiden and, and Phonogram with Def Leppard. I mean, I know the popularity was there because uh, I hear it, heard it then, and I have, I've hear it every day since. <laughs> of somebody or other, it seems. Um, you know, the obviously the albums got over there. Everybody seems to know Wildcat, but um, we didn't. It's a shame because. Uh, I think that, especially when John Sykes joined, the the band became, you know, even even better. Um, and um, 
we I'm sure we could have done very well. Uh, I mean, at the time when you your kids, you know, all these things just happen around you, and you just get on with it, and uh, you don't think of the future necessarily. It's only when you're older and you look back, and you can go, oh, "Only if I wonder," you know, because I think. Um, I mean, we were we we could have gone and done more. I mean, that's for sure. But as I say, you know, I, I I don't know why. I was never privy to why that never happened. Just MCA weren't equipped, maybe, to do that or didn't want to do that. I, I don't know. That that needs to be a question put to them. <laughs> it, it really does. Now, the other thing that's puzzling is here you have this sort of major album going on again, top twenty. You're the vocalist. <clears throat> And they decide on Spellbound to to change. Why do you think they didn't sort of keep the winning formula and keep you with the band? I think that uh, MCA weren't really a metal label as such. I mean, they they did have one or two bands in the States, uh, um, but who, who weren't really metal. I mean... It was the new wave of British heavy metal, and English metal was very distinctly English. It was very heavy metal. I mean, we came also from a punk background as well, uh, you know. So you've got like Judas Priest and the Sex Pistols mixed up in there, and it was all, uh, you know, the Clash and, and whatever else. It was, it was a hodgepodge. It wasn't the American market at the time was more high harmony rock thing. I, I know that. I know that. I know the thrash, the thing happened uh, pretty soon after that but whilst we were around initially in uh, in 1980 you know we there was none of that so I, I, they were essentially a kind of country and westerny blues label really and i really don't think they knew what to do with us quite frankly i think we just got signed as one of their quarter of like well okay this new british heavy metal's happening we need some of these what, what's going around? Okay, well, there's one. Tiger's Pants, I will have them. Def Le- um, Diamond Head, we'll have that one. Um, so they just took a couple of bands on the label. It was kind of like throw it at the wall, see if it sticks, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. If it does, it does. They didn't know what to do, and I think they were constantly looking at the idea of trying to get a hit single. Um, I mean, they sent us in the studio to write a hit single uh, at one point. I mean, uh, during the the wildcat time um i mean we, we went in the studio and wrote uh, rock and roll man which wasn't on the album it was essentially to try and get a hit single uh and, and uh it, it did uh, it well it did very well here in the uk but um the uh they were looking all the time at uh changing the band from day one i think i think they wanted this in this course when they saw Def Leppard go stratospheric i think that made their mind up and um, they changed the band. Sadly, what they did do was alienate all the hardcore metalheads who were into the band because they changed it so much. I mean, by the fourth album, which was only in an 18-month period, we much <laughs> we have to remember. I mean, these albums pretty much came out in a year and a half, these four albums, um, or well, to two years tops. Uh, to the cage. Now the band were unrecognizable by the fourth album. I mean that was that was a real go at what we call the Radio One Housewife market here in the UK, which was uh, try you know basically trying to get uh, blanket play on Radio One and, and appeal to the housewife as it were. 
Um, but they failed. Uh, it didn't happen. And But unfortunately, as I say, it alienated their fan base, so they were left in limbo uh, with nothing. And that the band just imploded. So I guess it was MCA's um, mismanagement of the band, sadly, that, that caused this. Uh, but um, I suspect the, the, the band could have gone on and done a lot more if they just used the bullets that they had at the time. Yeah, I think so. And then, of course, by the time you get to Burning in the Shade, um, the, ba- the band becomes sort of an, an Asia or Wham kind of knockoff by then. Um, were you at all involved in Spellbound? Did, had you were recorded any demos or written any other songs, or were you totally uh, divested from the band at that point? Well, I obviously lived with John Sykes. Uh, well, I, you don't know that, but I did live with John Sykes uh, after the band, even when I left, um, John and I shared a flat together for years, and we had recording gear there, and, and you know we used to muck around together. I mean, let's put it this way: I recognise little bits and pieces on Spellbound, but uh, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, you know, uh, I I didn't get credited at all uh, during that period with anything, but. Um, it was still fairly, you'll see, it was still fairly rockyish. Uh, I know it changed quite a bit, but it was still a fairly rocky album. Um, not not Wildcat, fair enough, but uh, it was still, fa- and, and it still held up that one as well as, as a great album uh, by the fans. Um, I think it was the third one, the Crazy Nights, that started to get a little bit poppier. And then the fourth, of course, The Cage was... Um, well, it was just, I don't know what that was. That was like an AOR album. It was, it was, he actually didn't even write that album. It was, it was writers were brought in to write it. Um, I know some of the band names appear on the tracks, but essentially you'll see John Parr on there and, um, Leave Estrella, obviously, Love Potion number nine. And, uh, there was one of the, uh, in house writers from, uh, from Neat on there as well, Steve Thompson who had a hit with a band called, I forget the name of the band, but the song was called Hurry Home. It was a very bland, very bland hit. But, um, so, yeah, I mean, there were songwriters involved uh, on the fourth album. Uh, so, you know, MC, it was pretty obvious what MC were doing there, but I, I was essentially evolved slightly on the second album, I would say, yes. But um, uh, Wildcat was really the, really the album that Rob and I wrote. And it's also... Um, Essentially, uh, as you say, Wildcat is held up still now today and stands up. But the cage is, it's weird. You put it on, it's so dated. It, it really sounds like 1984, where Wildcat, I think, of the album came out. Now people would still, you know, cock an ear to it and go, oh, this is, this is a bit sort of crazy. This sounds good. But uh, who knows? Yeah, and, and what I find interesting about the cage and Crazy Nights and is that they were moving in this more AOR-friendly, you know, as we call it now, soccer mom style, but music hadn't really gotten there yet. We were still, you know, in, in Heaven and Hell and, and Dio and, and Sabbath and Blizzard of Oz, and, and, you know, we hadn't gotten to the, the mid-'80s yet, and it, it was almost like they were a, ahead of the curve in terms of trying to write these pop singles, you know? It was, it was, it was interesting. Well, um... I mean, look, Poetry Number Nine's fabulous. I love it. Uh, the, the the track, I think, the, you know, John's guitar on there is superb. I know John's not credited of, 
as being on there, but he is. Um, and it's, um, you know, it's a fabulous song, but the album as, as a whole, I, I just find it a bit bland. And then when I went on to those other albums, as you say, um, uh, The Wreckage and uh, Burning in the Shade, which I think was 85, 87, they were just, I don't know what band that was. It wasn't the Tigers. Um, but, I mean, it's the early Tiger that seems to be remembered fondly and, and, and wanted still. So I think that says, uh, you know, says everything. Um, I mean, I was out playing on last weekend at a thing called Hard Rock Hell, which was a big festival here in Sheffield. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it was a sold-out show. And uh, every people were just, well deliriously happy, you know, to hear wild, the Wildcat songs done by, uh, you know, the, the, the singer from, the original singer. Um, so, you know, it's, and nobody, and nobody to a man has ever mentioned anything about any other album as far as I know, and to me. And I mean, I work in the music industry, this is what I do for a living, this is my, this has been my job all my life, I, I've had no other job. So I'm, I'm talking to people around the world constantly, uh, and obviously, the fans from then are now, you know, heads of labels and and and, and, and MDs at, at magazines, and, and you know, they're all which which helps greatly. It's fantastic, but obviously, I'm reminded every day. I can't hide. I've got such a name that it's it's I'm, I can't hide behind like a John Smith or something, you know, which is quite common. I mean, Jess Cox is pretty uncommon, so. Everybody knows it's me, so the first thing is usually the words out of their mouth is, oh, yeah, Wildcat, and, you know, and it's, uh, well, what happened to this, and what happened with that, and, oh, I hate the cage, I hate the cage. I, I, know, it, I know it went from, I remember in, in the European polls they had within six months, I think, from Wildcat to, oh, yeah, whatever it was, from Wildcat to the cage, and um, we went from number one band in Europe to the worst band in Europe, you know, bottom, uh, that's how, that's how far we fell so quickly. um... Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, John Sykes, you mentioned John, he is of course one of the greatest rock guitarists, uh, having done a stint with, of course, Whitesnake, Blue Murder, Thin Lizzy. Um, do you still talk to John and how do you sort of rate him as a guitarist? Oh, well, I rate him extremely high, massively high. I mean, he lived and breathed it. You know, he, as I say, we were best friends and we lived, we shared a flat together for years. Um, in fact, um, when he, wa- he wanted to join Ozzy originally when uh, when Randy Rhodes died. In fact, the day, the day he died, we went out and bought all of Ozzy's albums and went back to the to to our flat and we just kept dropping them on the solos and John kept learning the <laughs> learning each solo by Pat and um I even wrote his letter for him, you know, Dear Mr. Osborne, my name is John Sykes, I'm twenty four years old. I would like to join your band type thing, you know. 'Cause we went we gave this to Chris because Chris Tangaridis had given us the nod and said, Oh, Ozzy wants wants John, you know. And um but we went to the audition, and uh, Ozzy, Ozzy wasn't well, uh, if, if you know what I mean. And uh, it didn't quite work out. So, but uh, Sharon, I know, rang, rang us later and said, Oh, Joe, Ozzy's not well. He's gone to hospital. Uh, we wanted to join the band. But it frightened him so much by then that um, he didn't want to join. So uh, he ended up joining uh, Phil Linnett's band to do a, a solo tour. 
um, but then Phil thought he was so great, he got him into Lizzie, and then Lizzie toured uh, in Europe on their final goodbye tour. They supported Whitesnake, and then Coverdale had said to John, when you finished here, you know, come and join, come and join me in Whitesnake. So it was just stratospheric for him. I mean, he went from a young guy in, in Blackpool, uh, he was working on a building site, uh, literally carrying bricks up and down a ladder on his back. That's, that's when we found him. And um, to this, you know, superstar, um, he had to move to America on, on the night the night before uh, the White Snake album came out because he, he became a millionaire overnight on pre-sales alone. Uh, and he went there as a tax exile. So, you know, he just went colossal. Uh, but he, d- he deserved it. He was a fabulous guitar. He is a, is a fabulous guitar player. Um, he, as I say, that's all he lived for was his guitar. He used to walk around the house with it on his neck. And we, we were watching TV, and all I could hear was John playing his guitar next to me. Didn't have a mic. It wasn't, wasn't, um, wasn't plugged in or anything, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the dedication was colossal. And uh, he'd played it all his life because... I mean, he used to tell me that I think the he he, he didn't really go to school and his parents split and he got sent to Spain to brought up with his uncle who played guitar and because he wasn't going to school, all he did was concentrate upon playing guitar all through his young life um, and I guess that's why he became so fabulous at it, you know. But um, he he's he's. Uh, he kind of disappeared, I suppose, after Whitesnake. He'd, uh, he'd, you know, he should have... There was a lot more... I think there was a lot more in him to do, but uh, I just don't think he had the guidance. And, yeah, I, I, have, I have spoken to him over his career. He asked me certain times, oh, should I do this, should I do that? And I've suggested things to him, which uh, he's taken on. But um, the last time we saw each other, actually, was 2000 and... Let's see, my son was born, so it was 2006, maybe. I think I saw him in Ireland on, uh, I went over to, I went over to Belfast to see a Lizzie show, and we spoke there about me possibly licensing his albums, because he was getting his albums back from Japan, the uh, Blue Murder stuff, uh, and John Sykes albums. But uh, he decided to put them out himself, I believe, uh, with, with some help from a, a guy uh, on, on, I think he just sells them on the internet now, is from what I, what I gather. Um, so he kind of went into a cottage industry, John Sykes world, I think. <laughs> it, 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 it's, a, it's a pity. I, it, it's sort of a, why do you think you, he's disappeared essentially for the last 10 years? Is it, was he, you know, did he have stage fright? Is it, is, is he just, he doesn't have anything left to say or it's, it's, Peculiar. Well, he's. Um, I think uh, John's never John's never really been great on trusting people, uh, uh, as far as I'm aware. Um, and uh, I just, when the big deals weren't there anymore, I just think he found it difficult to uh, to uh, do something, and he didn't feel as though he wanted to to trust anybody. I guess I don't really know. Um, you know, because he, he had everything came to him very quickly and very easily, and uh, and I think when that dried up, um, I just don't think he knew what to do. Um, I mean, he had rang me and asked me, even after Whitesnake had finished. I remember when it was the best of Thin Lizzy came out, and 
he rang me saying, how do I get my royalties? And I'm like, well, I, I don't know, Johnny, you must have a contract with somebody. Uh, read that, you know, and it'll tell you on there. Um, like many musicians, he didn't really, you know, great musician, but as far as business goes, didn't quite know what to do. So I guess, you know, maybe his phone stopped ringing. I don't know. I mean, I, I'd heard there was a couple of bands came along and asked him to do something. I think even in recent years, I believe there was some L.A. super band going to get together and he was supposed to be in that. And then I heard he'd, fall, he'd fallen out. Uh, he obviously he works at his own pace, I guess. And I think he maybe he's more comfortable working with himself, which is good and bad, but it's good in the fact that you can do everything you want, but bad in the sense that there's nobody else there to say, hey, you know, do this or do that. Um, and now I don't know because, as I say, I've not spoken them for ten years or something. So I really, I really don't know uh, where his head's at or what he wants to achieve. If if anything, I thought he was doing another Blue Murder album I, I, last time I heard. Anyway, but I don't know if that happened. That would that would actually be great. Uh, Nineteen ninety nine, you rejoined Tigers of Pantang for a very special performance at Wacken. Um, talk to me about that day, that event, and why didn't you carry forward with the band? What, for, for you know, why are you not the singer now? For example. Well, good question. I don't know. You have to ask Rob Weir that. Um, I um, I was always kind of involved with the Tigers right the way through. I mean, even though I'd gone in '91, uh, I went to London at a band called Lionheart for a while <clears throat> with. Um, Dennis Stratton, who just left Maiden, and there was a few of the guys, Steve Mann on guitar, Frank Noon, who had been in Def Leppard on drums, and another bass player called Rocky, strangely enough, on bass. Um, and uh, we we did some demo work, and I was living at the townhouse in London, which was uh, uh, Branson's uh, recording studio, Virgin Records he had at the time. And... Uh, then I did some solo work. I did a solo album, and and but even when I was doing the solo album, um, around that same time I got all the demos together, which I mentioned to you that the Tigers had recorded with me um, prior to the MCA deal, and I put that out as an album called First Kill. And um, Rob and I had got back together because uh, Rob had also come out with the Tigers uh, prior prior to that. Um, so we got together and called ourselves Tiger Tiger, uh, which I don't know if many people know that, but we did um, with the idea of recording an album because we were we were two songwriters on Wildcat. I know the four names are on there, but it's essentially Rob and I, and um, <clears throat> we wrote an album, um, which was I think it was going to be called On the Prowl, if I remember. I can't quite remember, but uh, that was going to come out. Now on 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 First Kill, there was a Tiger Tiger track on the end. Uh, so I had all these Tigers Pantang demos, and right at the end, we put one of the tracks we'd finished um, on this album. Um, and Rob and I were supposed to that we picked, we found a band, we were going to go on tour, but then Rob didn't go. Uh, he wouldn't go. And I, 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 when I asked, he'd, he'd, he'd lost it. He just couldn't get up on stage, uh, couldn't do it. For um, just lost his bottle, I guess. Um, so he was working as a goldsmith at the time because he was also working in jewellery that's what he used to do before the Tigers even started uh, so he's kind of working in that and as I say he went on to 
basically punching tickets on the local metro train stations uh, after that. But um, we, I went on tour was is Tiger Tiger, and uh, had had all these guys and we did this thing. So which included Tiger's tracks, of course, and then uh, Wacken Festival uh, was just kind of establishing themselves, big German festival. And they said to me, oh, um, can you ask all the guys in the Tigers if they want to get together, 20th anniversary, we'd love to have them on, a headline is Saturday night on the main stage. I was going, yeah, great. So I rang the old management who promised that they would contact all the band, which they told me they did. Uh, and apparently none of the band would do it. Um, but Rob Weir would do it. Uh, he, he was the only one apparently who said yes. Um, now, I went back to the uh, promoter and said, look, there's only Rob and I want to do it, so it's no good. you know." And he goes, no, 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 you, you and Rob wrote Wildcat, that's great. Why don't you two do it and um, <clears throat> just get some guys in? So I brought some other guys in. Um, we had uh, the Blitzkrieg guitarist at the time came and joined us for the show. And uh, and uh, we brought in... Um, uh, two of the guys I knew to play bass and drums, which were uh, known to me locally. Uh, we did that show and we put the album out as well. It came out on, uh, the live album came out in America only uh, on on Spitfire Records, which was uh, a subsidiary of Eagle Records out of the UK. And, uh, and that was it. I mean, I, I went there with a the full understanding that it was a one-off show celebration for our 20th anniversary, but unbeknown to me, uh, Rob had other plans after that and decided, I'd got him back on stage essentially, quite frankly, and I think he thought, hold on, I can do this. And uh, he took it upon himself to, after that, to to put a band around himself and call it the Tigers Pantang. Why, why he did that, I don't know. He certainly didn't ask any of the band. Um, so that's, and he's done it ever since. I thought it would just be a, a short-lived thing. I, I don't really know, but it's kind of gone on now for 15 years or something. Uh, but it's 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 uh, it's upsetting, really, because obviously it negates the situation with the band becoming. I mean, if we ever wanted to go out again as a celebration, it's a bit of a problem because uh, you know there's this, this other Tigers of Pantang going around, so. Um, I'm quite annoyed with him that he he did do that, um, but there you are. Uh, nobody's nobody really spoke in the band. You see, we all, as I say, when we all split up, we all split the five wins, and um, we never really spoke since. Quite frankly, it's only in fact this year that I've spoken with the bass player Rocky for the first, the very first time since 1980. <laughs> um, we we contact each other through Facebook, and uh, I said to him, "Oh, what's this? What's going on anyway with this Tigers? I mean, I guess you you okayed it with with Rob to do this?" And he's like, "No, no, no I didn't. I thought you did." I said, no, "I didn't." And so we worked out that nobody did. Um, but of course, we we all had quite high careers. I mean, obviously, I was running neat records. It's very unlikely. Had I been asked anyway, that I would have done it, quite frankly, because I had far too much on my plate um, looking after new records. Um, Rocky was, as I say, a big-time big, big time solicitor, 
I mean, I think he's I think he's the head now of some company who uh, has like Arister as one of his accounts. So, you know, it's a musical lawyer. Uh, Brian, I believe. Uh, well, I think he lives on a Brian the drummer. I think he owns a donkey farm uh, in the south of England because uh, I know I got a card off him once with a lot of donkeys on the front. And um, he, he talks about donkeys online, so I guess that's what he must do. Um, and John is, well, John's John Sykes, uh, whatever, I don't know. He lives in L.A. still, I guess. So it, it, it was just, you know, um, it was just Rob was able to do this, and he did it. Um, so it's uh, it's a shame, you know, that uh, he thought he could do it. And, and I mean, that's why, I, I mean, I could have gone out and called myself the Tigers of Pantang. But I, I wouldn't do it because um, it's disrespectful, you know. I mean, if I ever did anything like that, I'd, I'd seek the permission of all members. I mean, the only reason we did that 20th anniversary show was because I'd asked all the members and they'd all said no. Um, so we did it as a celebratory thing, uh, or our thoughts, it was just as a celebratory thing for the 20th anniversary of the release of the first single. But... Um, <clears throat> So uh, I am, um, as I say, I'm running neat records anyway, as I say, and then Metal Nation Records, and uh, I've had a very successful time there, and uh, uh, it's been very lucrative and enjoyable for me. Um, but I know in recent years, uh, there's, a, there's a, quite a lot of interest now in the new British Heavy Metal again, I, I've noticed, and uh, the bands that I was looking after who maybe 10 years couldn't, you know, couldn't get arrested are now going out for substantial fees um, and there's a big interest again in, 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 in those bands so I've started playing again as well I mean I did a South American tour last year with Blitzkrieg uh, doing a few Tigers numbers as, just as Jess Cox um, and I have always gone out as Jess Cox I guess uh, dotted over the years all the solo album and everything um, but a lot of times I would get up with bands and do one-offs uh, just a, a Tiger song at the end. I know I've got up with Holocaust and Savage and Blitzkrieg over the years just to keep my hand in. But um, <clears throat> last year I did the South American tour and I did some uh, Irish and European dates this summer. And now, as I say, I've just done a big UK show called Hard Rock Hell. And there's talk now of me going over to America next. I guess it's next summer they're looking at uh, as part of uh, the uh, Milwaukee Metal Festival in July and then putting some dates around it. So I'd love to try and get into LA and New York and a couple of shows in Canada or whatever. Um, so that we're just talking with an agent now about that, but obviously that again, that's just going to have to be as a Jess Cox uh, thing because obviously I... I kind of really go out as a Tigers of Pantang, it would just look stupid. But essentially, I'd be doing Tigers tracks. Obviously, I'd do a couple of things from Lionheart and a couple of things from the solo album, but essentially, it'll be Wildcat. Um, and <clears throat> it's uh, unfortunate. I mean, it'd be nice to think that we could have, you know, got the band back together and done a few shows uh, this time in our lives, but uh, I'm not sure that can happen now, really. Yeah, I mean, just imagine what a... Uh a new wave of British heavy metal tour or festival could look like. I mean, you could you could still go out with Diamond Head and Venom and Girl School and Grim Reaper and Tigers and Saxon. I mean, any promoter, I think, would love to see that. Um, 
Let me ask you, you mentioned a one-off. I want to ask you, sir, about this infamous one-off you did in 2003, again at Wacken, singing for Diamond Head. Um, Talk to me a bit about that, because, you know, I've I've watched the performance online. There's video of it all over YouTube and stuff. Uh, You and and, and Brian, you know, the band sounded great together. Your your version of Am I Evil just, it sounds very metal-ish, if if you want. Um, What was that all about? Because I know the band had sort of put out this press release saying, well, Wacken booked us, but they really didn't book us, and Sean's not going to come, so Jess is coming. In st- like it, 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 was it as confused as it seems? Well, I was booking bands in the Wacken pretty much every year on, you know, year, year on year. Um, and that particular year, the agents had asked me if I could get Diamond Head. And I said, yeah. So um, I got in touch with Brian and uh, said, do you want to do this show? And he's like, yeah, great, you know. So um, the guys were getting it together, but Sean um, is Sean. <laughs> and uh, he, he, uh, he just, I think, somewhere along the lines where he, was, he would play it, but he didn't want to be called Diamond Head, and he didn't want to do any Diamond Head numbers. So that was a problem. Um, and this was kind of like, two weeks before the show or something. So they were like, oh, God, we're going to have to pull out. And I said, you can't pull out. You can't. It's a big show. You want it. You need to do this show. And, um, well, we, you know, what, the hell, what are we going to do? And, uh, and I don't know if it was me or them or what. Which they, I think they just said, oh, Jess, can you do it? I'm like, well, I can, but I, 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 kind of, I, I can't learn a full diamond, diamond head uh, set in, in, in like, you know, 10 days or something, you, you, you'll have to do a few Tiger things. Maybe we can just botch it together and do something. I don't want to pull out. It looks bad. So um, because I was organizing it and they were in the show together, we we thought, look, okay, let's just do it. What the hell? You know, and uh, that's what we did. It was literally just a spur of the moment thing. And I think I learned, I can't even remember now. I, I think we maybe did five Tigers and five Diamond Head, probably something like that. Um, I went down to Birmingham um, and we did a re- couple of rehearsals. It might have only been two. And uh, off we went and did this show. I mean, it, it went down great, I remember. To be truthful, I, I thought at the time, ha- half these people don't even realize that who I am or or anything. I, you know, as far as they're concerned, it was probably, this is Diamond Head, you know. And in fact, some of the reviews I read didn't even mention it. Um, I think they thought it was Sean. You know, I, 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 you know, I, I'm, I'm not convinced people took that much notice. Um, you know, <laughs> it was peculiar for sure. And then this this track came out online, um, which everybody seems to have seen. And um, yeah, so, but I think there's a whole show of it somewhere. Um, but. So that was that story, yeah. <laughs> well, well, there must be, because I know Wacken likes to record everything. And, and just, uh, uh, I'm looking at the set list now. There were four Tiger songs and five um, Diamond Head songs. Um, I know we said we were going to do 20 minutes, so we've gone way over. But let me, let me just finish then real quick with sort of a rapid roundup. Lionheart, you mentioned a couple of times. It was sort of one show and done, a sort of a one and done. Um, what happened there? Well, yeah, I mean, that was a, that was another horrible disappointment. Um, 
I mean, we we came, when I came out the Tigers, as I say, um, the old Tigers management put an advert in a, in, a lo- in the Melody Maker, which was the, the the national music paper of the UK, where musicians traditionally put wanted ads in, and um, I think we just put it, they put an ad in there saying, you know, established vocalist. Uh, would, you know, looking for like-minded rock musicians or whatever, of a you know a high standard and, and name musicians, and Dennis was come. Dennis Stratton was out of Maiden at the same time, so we hooked up, and um, I got together. I got the guitarist in, um, Steve Mann, because Steve had come for an audition with the Tigers, same time as John Sykes, and uh, <clears throat> it was between him and John for the job. To be truthful. So the obvious step for me was to bring in Steve Mann into Lionheart. And I think uh, Rocky, the bass player, and and uh, Frank Noon were his friends. And he just brought them with him because I think he was playing in some band, uh, Wildlife or whatever they were called. He brought them with him. So that was our band. So uh, I went down to London. We rehearsed and, re- and, and wrote an album together. Um all financed by Virgin Records. Uh, I was staying in the townhouse, like I say. Um, <clears throat> Virgin were were basically financing the band. Uh, we went down to Southend, uh, which is a town in the south of England, and we we did a couple of warm-ups. I remember we played with Will called Johnson and um, did a couple of warm-ups. We even had uh, Iron Maiden's Lightning Crew down there with us, and... Uh, and then we went in to play the Marquee, which was sold out in London. And we had the Iron Maiden's Lightning Rig in there as well. And it was just, I remember, frying to death. Uh, we had the crew there helping us doing everything as well. Um, now, unfortunately, Dennis is, he's, uh, he's uh, you know, a bit of an unstable guy. I mean, uh, the Iron Maiden lads did tell me not to, not to work with him, you know, because that's why he'd gone out of Maiden, because of his instability uh instability uh mentally and uh i know i think we finished the, the the maiden guys are all working for us for nothing and and dennis was starting to pick fights with them just before the show because i think the, the pressure just gets on to them uh, um and I, I was pretty shocking. And, and, but any, anyway, we went on. We did the show. It was fantastic. And uh, Virgin were about to sign us. And then they decided, Dennis was like, oh, we want to do high harmony rock like the USA bands. We want to... I was saying, why, why, why? What are you saying? I can't... I don't want to do that. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. You know, I hate harmony rock. You know, I'm not interested. If you don't... I'm a hard rock English front man. That's it. You know, and... Um, no, no, this is what we want to do. I said, well, you'll have to do it alone because I ain't doing it. So uh, off, we just parted. And, I mean, that was literally after... It made me look stupid because, I mean, the, the thing only lasted about six months. And, and and the papers in the UK had a field day because the Builders was the first new of the British heavy metal supergroup. Uh, and then a few weeks later, here we are on the... the, the put a, as they do, they put the Tigers on one side and Lionheart on the other in an interview... I had something like the fur flies when the tigers and lions meet, something like that. And then I think literally the week after, it was a picture of me uh, in a headline saying um, the supergroup that lasted a week or something like that. You know, it was pretty horrible. 
So uh, I had to come home uh, uh, back to the northeast and uh, very disappointed. Really, well, <laughs> very disappointed was 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 the least of it. Um, I think I stayed out of the industry. I, I decided not to go back. I only got brought back in because a punk band called the Revillos came to me and asked asked if I would sing a track with them called Devil's Triangle, which then went on to uh, uh, Heavy Metal Records, Heavy Metal Heroes Volume 2. Um, and that's when Neat Records asked me to come back and do this solo album and tour. Uh, so that, that, you know, that's my, how I got back into it. Uh, and then I... Uh, uh, but Linehall was a, was a was a massive disappointment, I'm afraid. Yeah, unfortunately. Now you mentioned the British press; um, they have been, to me, unnecessarily hard on you. They they've they seem to criticize you at almost every turn. You know, the the solo album Third Step was was panned by them. They they've taken shots at your your vocal abilities. Um, why do you think they sort of have it out for you? Because that's sort of the perception I get just by reading all the different reviews and articles. And what is it with the with the British press and you? Um, well, uh, I have seen some some of that, but actually, there's a lot of it which is exceptionally good. Um, I mean, I know when the album came, the solo album came out, um, the review in Sounds magazine, which was basically the bible. Of the British rock press at the time, gave it four four stars out of five, and uh, it was a huge picture of me in it, and said, uh, "If this is indicative of British rock in 1984, then it's in for a timely and healthy boost." And it was saying, uh, uh, "I know there was a live review from Xavier Russell in Kerrang, which said he'd completely underestimated me, and is one of the best gigs." by a British band he'd seen outside of Marillion that year. Uh, so, you know, there, there's some pretty positive reviews around uh, in interviews, but um, I don't know. I don't really care to tell you the truth. I mean, uh, I, I just do what I do. You know, I ain't David Coverdale. I know that. I don't want to be David Coverdale. Well, actually, no, I think I would be David Coverdale. But I, I don't really want to be, you know, I hate, as I say, I hate harmony, hard rock. I come back from a, a heavy metal but a punky kind of area, and I sing how I sing, and that's it. You know, I mean, nobody, you know, nobody said, oh, you know, Lemmy can't sing, you, you know. Lemmy's got a distinctive voice, and everybody loved it, you know. But um, I'm not sure he could do a nice uh, Journey Harmony album. Um, so, just, I don't know, just how it is. It's how I sing, and some people go crazy about it, and others, you know, don't. And that, as I say, that really doesn't bother me, you know. It's just, uh, you take it or leave it. I mean, some of my favorite singers are, are actually not real singers, but that doesn't bother me. It's, uh, it's, if it's, if it sounds good, it's good, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and. You know, uh, that's it. I mean, if it, if it, may, if it moves you, it works, and that's it. Yeah, and in, and in this day and age, uh, I look for a singer who can't win the X Factor. <laughs> That's what I'm looking for. So, you know, um, uh, we'll finish with with these two questions because I, we've been way way over schedule. And by the way, thank you for taking this extra time. Um, third step, you you released the album. Is there any chance that we might see 
it re-released at some point in a digital form or on on compact disc because um, you know you you've redone the uh, Tigers of Pantang albums with bonus tracks and stuff. Why not re-release uh, Third Step? Well, <clears throat> it was owned by Neat Records, uh, which I owned, um, as I said. But obviously, I sold Neat Records to Sanctuary, and uh, it was then owned by Sanctuary. Uh, which was Iron Maiden's company, as I said, also. Uh, but that's now moved on again uh, to, I believe, I think it's at BMG now. It was at Universal. It might now be BMG. I'm not sure. But um, uh, so there it sits, I guess. Um, and uh, I can't imagine that they're going to release it any day. Um, so I'm not really sure. Um, I mean, I guess I could go and license it, but. Um, I'm trying to get the license for the Tigers Pantai albums off them at the moment um, on a repress, but it's, I've been sitting waiting two years for that. Uh, so if and when I get them, maybe I... I mean, the thing is as well, also, I don't know, I've always been... I'm very English, you know, I'm not like American guys, where this thing there prays from the rooftops, which is cool, but you UK guys don't normally do that. They, they don't normally... You're not. It's not a done thing to speak about or promote yourself necessarily so I think um, it's always been another band as opposed to me uh, I've always been working on some other band you know like Blitzkrieg I've done a lot of work on the last 20 years uh, well and I've done tours with all all these bands Diamond Head, Girls School, Praying Mantis, Grim Reaper I mean I've had them on tour out around Europe uh, I mean I had Blitzkrieg in Japan last week uh, or last month now Um you know, I've had bands in the States. And, uh, I'm always doing some release. I've got some uh, Holocaust Nightcomers to come out with bonus tracks soon. I'm working on that at the moment. Um, it's always somebody else than me. I mean, it's amazing that I've actually given myself some time to do these shows. Um, I'm trying to strike a happy balance, which I think I've, I'm getting there now, because I do want to keep playing live, because I, I do enjoy it. And um, I will do some more releases. So maybe, maybe I look. I mean, there's a Lionheart album of all, you know, all these tracks, and there's some great tracks on it. And we never released it. And, uh, you know, that may be a possibility as well. I mean, there's the Tiger Tiger track, the album that Rob and I, Rob Weir and I did. I mean, you know, there's there's lots of things sitting around. But uh, I've even found the very first demo the Tigers did, which I've got. I've actually got the master reel-to-reel here in my house, and I, I can't hardly even remember the songs. Um, and I was all, I was thinking of maybe speaking to the guys and then getting that digitally put out as a seven-inch single, just for fun, because uh, I think we did it in 1978, uh, maybe, maybe 79. So th- there's things sitting around, so I, I must maybe... Um, look at getting that solo album out and about um, because um, it has a lot of fond memories for me and there is some good tracks on it so uh, uh, I mean I remember that, that that tour we did on that tour we played with Iron Ma- and, and Def Leppard uh, not Def Leppard uh, Metallica it was their first ever show in the UK it was in uh, the Marquee I didn't even know who they were. Uh, I remember my agent saying, oh, you're going to play the Metallica? And I'm like, who's that? And they're like, oh, it's an American band. They're going to be big. And I'm like, I've never heard of them. And 
was like, oh, well, no, you know, believe me, they're going to be big. So anyway, we did this show, and uh, all our members, Lars, asked me to sign his drumsticks and things. And um, but um, I subsequently met them many times, well, a few times, and they're absolutely lovely guys. But uh, at the time, I didn't, I, I, I didn't know who the hell they were, um, you know. But uh, you know that tour and that album has a lot of fond memories for me. So hopefully, we'll be able to uh, to get that uh, get that album out as well at some point. <laughs> yeah, and and. You know, the I don't know if you call it irony, but Lars has sort of been instrumental in keeping the new wave of British heavy metal in the public consciousness by having talked about Diamond Head and, and all these other bands for years and years and years. Um, we'll finish with this. Neat Records, uh, obviously you sold it to Sanctuary, and they have sort of left it inactive. Um, you know, Blitzkrieg, Raven, Venom, Jaguar... Fist, all the uh, uh, Persian Risk that has the you know Phil Campbell of Motorhead. Um, disappointed that they've that they sort of just let it sit and become this sort of inactive label with this great well, roster. Yeah, well, the guy. I mean, the, you know, in the world, in the big world of big labels, it's all about money, really, and they just add into the pot. Um, they saw it there for sale and took it because they could, <clears throat> I guess, and they just put it there and. Knowing it has a worth, and uh, it just makes their label richer, I guess. Uh, but they possibly haven't got anybody at the label who's looking at this and going, "Ooh, hold on." I- I'm sure the Venom albums must have come out again since then, but I would have thought. But uh, I don't think there's been much else. You're right. The amount of attention was to because uh, I sat here and thought, "Well, hold on." Um, I think I'm going to have to do something about this because um, obviously, particularly Blitzkrieg, who are who are essentially look after um, their whole early catalogue isn't available. Um, but, you know, or, or certainly after. I mean, I've just released. Uh, I had to re-record their first album, A Time of Changes, and release it, which I've just done uh, because I couldn't get my hands on the original album. But uh, there, there are other albums there that people ask me for. And uh, I must get them licensed. But as I say, I've been waiting two years for the Tigers license. My intention was to get those, and then move, start moving on through the catalogue. Because uh, I mean, um, Cloven Hoof have been asking me, "Oh, can you get my first album and you know put that out?" And I'm doing licenses in the South America with some Cloven Hoof things, and those guys are asking for it as well. So uh, I think the idea would be to go. And get these. I mean, if the Raven albums are now, I can't believe that. If they're not out, then that's criminal. Uh, I mean, Rock Until You Drop and stuff surely would sell extremely well, I would have thought. But uh, And uh, Welcome to Hell and, and whatever else. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think I'd uh, I'd go and get those. I mean, I'll license them, I should say. But as I say, I haven't got past step one yet with the Tigers album. So um, that's. Uh, that would be a plan, maybe. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> for the it, next few years. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit of a pity. You you look at the popularity of, of Wacken and and some of the other festivals. You know, Hellfest in in France and all. You would think that they would want some of these albums available, especially around those those festivals. But and and you know, White Spirit that had uh, Yannick Gerds of Iron Maiden. There, there's just a lot of great stuff, and it's just unfortunately sitting in a vault and. Anyway, someday, right? Someday. Well, they've got, I mean, they've got Elton John or whatever, you know what I mean? You, whoever, um, they turn over 
you know, X million, um, where the, these, these things to them, you know, 50 grand or a hundred grand isn't, isn't, you know, probably not worth the effort, um, to put it out. So, uh, you know, which is what it, it, it might generate, uh, cause they've got, they've got such huge things to, to do, uh, you know, new albums by major artists, I guess, uh, whoever the hell that might be, uh, you know, Jay-Z or, or God knows what. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's not on their mind. There's probably not some, some rock guy there either. Um, it would take somebody, I guess, to come into the label who's, who's all fair with, uh, with the importance of this catalog and to go, Whoa, what we've got here, you know, but, um, Maybe there isn't somebody there at this moment. Um, but uh, as I say, I uh, I have a, I have uh, intentions. So hopefully, um, as the next few years progress, we can I can get more of these albums out. Yeah, liberate the neat records catalog. There you go. Um, thank you so much for today. I was gonna, we were gonna do twenty minutes. Here we are, an hour later, and we we didn't even yeah. we didn't even dissect uh, the new wave of British heavy metal uh, movement or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, but thank you, absolute great yeah, pleasure. Well, no problem. I mean, uh, another time we can talk about new wave uh, down the line. You know, it's not a problem. Uh, but uh, um, hopefully, the listeners will find this of interest and. Uh, if I am over there in Canada next year, we maybe might even meet a few of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love to see you over here. You know, I, I do have connections to a couple of clubs. Uh, we had, uh, speaking of Grim Reaper, we had Steve in not too long ago, so um, maybe we can get you in here too. I and think in fact, the same guys were over there uh, at, at a club uh, well, we just had last the, year. We just had Diamond Head about two weeks ago, three weeks ago they came and played, so... Yeah. yeah. Light all their patches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, time to get everybody in here. Thank you, Jess. Great pleasure. All right. Thanks very much. <laughs> Bye-bye now. Thank you. Yep. Bye. And there you have it, folks, my interview with Jess Cox, former singer of Tigers on Pantang, certainly one of the most entertaining and informative interviews I have done recently. So a big thank you to Jess for that. Please check me out on Twitter at Mitch Lafon, M-I-T-C-H-L-A-F-O-N, paypal.me forward slash Mitch Lafon, and Mitch underscore LaFawn on Instagram. Thank you all for listening, and uh, bye for now. Cheers.